Well, it seems that um, a lot of the, uh, goes really well this morning, I think. Um, a little bit of the theme so far is, uh, is um, we, we sometimes forget about the commonplace or the simple things. Um, we come here and sometimes we go through the motions and forget what we're doing, um, that we are in the presence of the king. Um, another reason, uh, when, when Mike and Anna reached out to me earlier this week and says, so, you know, what are we doing? What can we do with music and everything? And I thought, well, I mean, the birth of Jesus is appropriate to do some type of Christmas song, right? And so uh, we, we, I kind of thought about the old little town of Bethlehem. And, and it was neat as we we're singing it again. I hadn't looked at the lyrics in a while, but it kind of says the same thing. There's, you know, this little quaint town where nothing seems to be happening and the most significant thing in history was happening. Um, so, going along that, I was thinking about reading it, but um, before we get started this morning, um, I kind of tell, I want to tell a story along that line, I guess, I get what, what, what the Father was um, demonstrating to me this week. So we're going to be, kind, we're going to be studying something, a, a small passage today, something actually really familiar to probably a lot of us or, or, or every one of us, the birth of Christ. And unlike the account in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew keeps the count fairly short in his gospel. Um, as we get started, then I want to share a couple of the brief experiences I've had this week. Many of you know, um, or may not know, that for exercising, my go-to, my preference, is for lifting weights, picking heavy things up and putting them back down. Um, I also do it partly because, it's just a little background, I've, I've always had, since college, some back troubles. And my friend, I talked to him, and he just says, you know, if you're going to solve that, you should just strengthen your back, and you'll have less of that. Well, so that's what I've been doing, and a couple weeks ago, on a Wednesday, I was doing my normal thing, and on Thursday, I bend over to put a sock on, and all of a sudden, my back went out, right? And if anybody's ever experienced that, uh, you'll know how painful that is to do the simplest tasks. So even bending over to, to put your sock on, you know, getting dressed and undressed, and you know, standing up, walking... Um, all those things are, are kind of painful to do. Well, when this happens, you begin to realize all of the important things your back muscles do, right? Uh, you don't think about them, and you take them for granted until they don't work properly. To continue the story then, doing anything involving my back, which is pretty much anything except sitting or lying down for, the, for those few days, was painful. So Thursday through Saturday of that week uh, was pretty difficult for me. Even last Sunday... It was a little bit difficult, but um, I've been slowly improving, and I feel pretty good by this week, uh, by today at least. And um, because I was not going to risk aggravating that injury, I decided this past week for my exercises that I would just go on early morning walks. So um, after my quiet time on Monday morning, I went on a walk around the neighborhood. And you know all this that... Um, you know that this week, this last week, it started to cool down, right? And so it's nice and 50s and crisp in the morning. So I experienced a cool 50-degree air. I smelled hints of autumn in the air and heard the crunching of the first fallen leaves underfoot and heard about four different kinds of birds singing and saw the first lights of the sunrise over the valley. And by the end of the walk, I had a big smile in my heart. This walk helped me remember the little 
But in the end, the big and important things that I often underappreciate, the simple senses of living. We go about our busy days and forget how beautiful things are and how the fact that we can see anything and move about, feel the sun on our skin, smell the autumn breeze, taste a good meal. And what does all this have to do with our passage today then? What does this story have to do with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah? Well, the story is so familiar to us that like the use of my back and forgetting to marvel at the simple business of living, we forget to marvel at and even appreciate the fact that God came to us. The birth of Christ just becomes something we get used to. And I'll admit that when When Ricky first asked me to switch to preach this week, I opened the passage and I read this, and and forgive me for thinking this, I thought, great, I get the birth of Christ. The thing everybody knows, right? Thinking that this is so commonplace, maybe kind of boring, something like, what else am I going to say that they don't already know? Um, And something that we've known in our hearts since little kids, right? I guess it took my back giving out to realize that the commonplace things... The things we let go by and take for granted are really not so commonplace as we might think and shouldn't be breezed over, but should be stopped at and marveled. So today we're going to open to, and you can go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is our text for today. We're going to study the birth of Jesus Christ. And I pray, and I have been praying, that the Spirit will enlighten our hearts today to the mystery and majesty of the commonplace, that we might know with the eyes of our hearts the significance of this particular birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at this text by breaking it down and looking at, one, the setting and context, give you a little background, and we'll discuss what the birth fulfills, and finally, what the birth means. So, setting and context, fulfillment of the birth, meaning of the birth. So, last week, we went over the genealogy, right? And Matthew, his first first statement is, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gives 
gives this long list um, of, of his line. And then we come to this right after it, and he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. So he wrote about this last week, or sorry, we studied this last week. And Matthew wrote out the lineage of Jesus through Joseph's line to show the human lineage and legitimacy of prophecy fulfilled. That this person, the man of whom so many people were claiming to be the Christ, was actually from the lineage, the word of God foretold for the coming Messiah. To show he was a real man from a line of real people. The Christ, in Greek, the royal title, the Messiah, okay, the anointed one of God, would come through the lines of Abraham and David. The line of royalty through David, at least human royalty as foretold. And here now we have now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Jesus Christ, the anointed one. But also the birth, the event, the actual ushering in of life. The author of life came to life in a seemingly very ordinary, commonplace way. The way all people come to life. He was born. The record of his birth is a record of history, a historical fact, not just a story. As well, it shows that he was an actual human. Not just a story of an idea or a man. We're dealing with the real. And Matthew is announcing the record of a king. Think about this from their perspective. We've read it a lot. Think about it from their perspective, reading it or listening to it for the first time. So if you read this for the first time or heard it, the first statement is commanding your attention. The birth of Jesus, the anointed king, the one. Not just an anointed king. That would be oppressive enough. But the anointed one, the king, the son of David, the one we've longed for. You may, you may want to sit up and listen a little more closely after that announcement. He goes on, when his, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the word betrothed here, and in other translations, engaged, is not the same concept of engagement that we have today in our culture. Some of you may know this. But I didn't know this, that they had three stages of marriage in their culture. The engagement, which was often set up by the parents since early childhood. Then we had the betrothal, which is the marriage contract they entered into. But for a period of about a year, they didn't celebrate it with a wedding or a consummation of the marriage. It was just that year of betrothal, to, to, to realize the commitment. And then finally, in the marriage, that we, we take place, the wedding, the celebration, and the ceremony, along with the consummation, all of this happens again about a year after the betrothal. So this concept is important for, following, for the following verse and understanding why Joseph was going to, to divorce Mary. It was a legal contract. They were in, basically, marriage. And it is important to know that the couple was in this stage, and the second, going to the third of the marriage covenant when these events occurred, the timing is important, um, 
I mean, even most basically, because it couldn't be the third stage, otherwise it might be Joseph being the father, right? Second stage, it's important. All right. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Second stage, before they came together, she was found to be with child. So they weren't fully married yet, and she was with child. Think about that, right? Many use this situation even in, in, in his own time. It must have been known or at least rumored about, and I thought this was interesting. So there were even instances we can see in the Bible in John chapter 8, verses 19. If you want to look it up real quick, I'm not going to go read it. In John chapter 8, verses 41, where people even called, seemed to even call the question of his birth and legitimacy of the marriage into question. Okay? So, already this family, we know, had to bear the brunt of the implications of being with child before the full marriage. We should also consider what this meant to Mary, right? A more detailed account of her is given in Luke's Gospel, where we get more of a glimpse into her experience. But about her experience, one commentator put it this way, he says, we should consider what a great trial this was for a godly young woman like Mary and for Joseph, her betrothed. Her situation was the most distressing and humiliating that can be conceived at that time. Nothing but the fullest consciousness of her own integrity and the strongest confidence in God could have supported her in such trying circumstances where her reputation, her honor, and her life were at stake. But also consider Joseph then. Whereas this pregnancy before marriage was more trying for Mary, Joseph was also in distress. We read in this in the, in the verse below, and it, this verse also speaks to, to Joseph's character. We reread, he says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Church, the time, the law and culture of this, uh, of this time, if something like this happened, it pretty much just demanded of them divorce, separation, okay? Um, and this could even, most often, could entail a public humiliation of Mary and even go so far as a stoning. It was that serious. But Joseph cared for Mary, so he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And also he says he's a just man, which, which, which leads not only to being man of righteousness, but also a believer. So he's, he's, he's a man of God, and he knows, he knows mercy too. So he's stuck between culture, law, and caring for Mary and mercy. So he, there's, a, there's, this, there's, this, there's this pressure for him. So he's thinking through it, and, and, and you see that here. It says uh, um, he resolved lately, and that means he was thinking through it, right? And all, later it says, uh, while he considered these things, while he's processing through it, while he's probably sweating about it, what do I do? He had thought long and hard about this. It's no easy decision. He wanted to marry Mary, but he wanted to obey the law as well. He wanted to be good with God. So he thought the best way then, the best compromise, was to divorce her, to satisfy his duty to the law and culture, but as quietly as possible, so as not to draw any more attention to Mary. 
But then, so think about the sticky situation this is, right? Consider then what it took to change his mind. What this, what this says to me is that when we see this dream here and we consider what happened, like the dream really kind of had to happen, right? Because otherwise we just see the way this is going, right? It says, but he, as he considered these things, as he contemplated and sweated over him, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Nothing short of an intervention by an angel, God's message, messenger, a special message, was going to sway Joseph, or anyone for that matter. This shows the difficulty of the situation, but also the importance of the occasion. Joseph assumed Mary was having a child due to natural relations. We can't tell if they discussed it or not. Probably not. But regardless, virgin births just don't happen. Right? Not then, not now. Again, at least naturally, we should say. Again, the skepticism of this is shown in John's gospel reference that we said earlier in chapter 8. There are people skeptical of it. Obviously, nothing is going to convince a man that this miraculous thing had happened except for a special message from God Himself. So we shouldn't be surprised to see this dream, a special message out of the ordinary. Finally, regarding Joseph's character, think about the ramifications of obeying God in their cultural context. This messenger said, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Fear what? The culture, right? His his surroundings, the people that he's with. Not only is his reputation on the line, but most likely repercussions that extended further, maybe even having difficulties making a living. This dream had to have happened. Otherwise, Joseph wouldn't follow through with the, he would have followed through with the divorce, right? If what he thought had happened happened, there wasn't much of a choice in his, in his part, in his context. And when he does obey God, it will be no small task for his new family. They will have to live with the stigma. I mean, how do you explain a virgin birth to the others, right? I mean, do you? Joseph would be like, yeah, she's pregnant, but, you know, she says she's still a virgin and the baby is from God. And people, really? Imagine having to explain that. So both Mary and Joseph had to have some experience, and we see this recorded in the Gospels, to convince them that this is the path and that this is from God. Mary had no choice, really, but still a special message from God himself was in order. And Joseph, a just man, obeyed God. We read at the end of the passage, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he did call his name Jesus. Finally, regarding this narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ, we must consider who this is ultimately about. Remember, We've been talking about the human characters. I wanted to get into that thus far, but remember, God is the principal actor in the narrative. Mary is found to be with child. The verb is passive. She didn't do anything about it. It was done by the Holy Spirit. Joseph is about to act, but he's prevented from doing so 
through a dream given by God. And his actions are always in response, in obedience to God's revelation. And finally, all of this is in fulfillment of the prophecies given by God to men in the first place. God fulfills his prophecies. One commentator put it this way, with the emphasis being on the work of God like this, the birth can only be seen as supernatural. This is, uh, this is the tone that Matthew wants to set out at the outset of his gospel. There's nothing purely human about this Jesus. The birth was of God, explained by God, in fulfillment of a prophecy by God. God planned it, God carried it out, and God made sure the main participants understood it as much as they were capable of. The whole thing was supernatural. Moving on then, point two, if you will, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Let's read further. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God so this, this is a really cool part, I think, where we bring a fulfillment of the prophecy. We bring the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together. We meet right here in the middle, and Matthew is showing it. He's saying all these things that we've been reading about since we were children, they've been fulfilled. Hold on to your seats, is what he's about. It's what he's kind of saying. One, and this is also, right here, one of Matthew's many formula quotations which is a theme in Matthew's gospel, so watch out for it as we preach through Matthew, where he declares that what was done to a fulfilled prophecy is followed then by a quotation from the Old Testament. The passage he quotes here is from Isaiah 7, 14. Let's all turn to Isaiah 7, and we're going to read for a little bit in here. Isaiah 7, I want you to get the context of what's happening. So the, the, verse 14, he, he quotes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm going to say this again a little bit later, but maybe as you're turning there, a little bit of the context. Um, when, when, when a prophecy is declared in the Old Testament, there's always some sort of immediate fulfillment, relatively immediate, and then an ultimate fulfillment later. Okay, so what we're trying to do is establish what the immediate fulfillment of this was. What's the context? What did the people in Isaiah's time understand this as? All right, so hold on for a little bit. We're going to do some reading so you can get the, the, the context. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Israel, and the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, 
you and Shir Bashab, Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Ephraim is Israel, northern kingdom. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, As a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to to weary men, that you weary my God also. This is Isaiah saying this to Ahaz. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring you will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, so we get a lot of, there's, you've got to really kind of study that passage and you're like, okay, what is happening here, right? Well, let's, let's sum it up a little bit. Damascus and Israel were conspiring against Judah, kingdoms, Okay. Isaiah is told then, so they're fearing this invasion that's about to happen. Isaiah is told to go out and meet Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, by the water supply for the siege to deliver the message not to fear them and that they would survive this. Don't fear this, Ahaz. You're going to survive it. But this would only happen if Ahab, Ahaz, it would only happen if he believed, if he had faith in it. Newsflash, Ahaz is not a believer and not even close, not a follower of God. So he doesn't want to submit to the prophet's advice to serve God in faith. But he also doesn't want to appear as an unbeliever before the people. So he, he doesn't ask for a sign, but instead says, I will not put the Lord to the test to appear righteous. And this, of course, angers Isaiah, God, and gives the how and who anyway gives the house of David, not specifically Ahaz, but house of David, a sign. And he says the sign, this sign was that, sorry, he gives him a sign. The sign was that there would be a birth that would guarantee the future of the dynasty. War was coming. Extinction was possible. But God was guaranteeing a future for the royal Davidic family by an unexpected birth a virgin would conceive and have a son. The Davidic covenant would remain in place. But 
but Ahab, Ahaz would have no share in the future. So this is basically what is happening. God is saying, I am certifying that you will not be extinguished by these two kingdoms. Fear not. This is the sign the virgin shall conceive there's going to be a birth, and this will be the sign that I will be with you. His name will be Emmanuel. I am with you. Now, it is important to know that, like I said before, that the Old Testament prophecies often have immediate fulfillments and ultimate fulfillments. What the prophet spoke of was for that particular time, but the Holy Spirit spoke these things through the prophet to be ultimately fulfilled later. This prophecy was to show a guarantee by God of the future of Judah. This is to be seen in a sign of a virgin birth. Now, the word, this is interesting, I think, for those of you who like to delve into these things. The word virgin in Hebrew is Alma, also means young maiden or young woman, just old enough to marry and bear children. And then this is where we get into some, some, some conflicts saying, people, people saying, well, it doesn't actually mean virgin, it just means young woman and, and so on and so forth. But there's a couple of different explanations for this, I'm, but I'm going to go with this line. It is thought that this prophecy was for an unexpected birth from a young woman in the royal house, a prince to be born of a young maiden or a young woman, Alma. And in the context of the royal house, she would be referred to as Alma, a young woman, but here it is, with the connotation of one being pure, a virgin. It has kind of both. The word can satisfy, but the neat thing is the word can satisfy two fulfillments. A young woman, a maiden, unexpected birth, but also a virgin, because royal line. Okay? So in the immediate context, this has also happened, this happened to show that God was with, but the important thing, sorry, I want to say this, this is the important thing. In the immediate context, this would also happen to show that God was with his people. He was with his people and would make sure that they would not face extinction. But it would serve as a sign to the people, to the house of David, that the threat they feared was not to be feared because God was with them. This was the sign. But this sign was merely a foreshadowing of the true and fullest fulfillment of the prophecy. Matthew gives knowledge of this here in his choice of the word, which is different than Alma. It's Parthenos, Greek, which specifically means virgin. No ambiguity. But what is more is that Matthew was quoting this, he also has in mind, and we'll see this in the rest of it as his rest of his gospel unfolds, the other prophecies of this child, this king, which he lays out, or which is laid out in Isaiah chapters 8 through 11. So I'm going to quote something, and it's going to be long, but it's, it's really good, so, so hold on to this. This is what Matthew, as he's quoting this, and this is what the people who knew this context of this verse, they knew all this stuff afterwards. They've heard all this stuff. There's a king that's going to come, and, and he's been described in Isaiah. So when he quotes this one verse, all this other stuff is wrapped into it. Alan Ross, then, this is, this is from the professor of, of the Beeson Divinity School. He says this. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, the sign of an extraordinary birth is announced, ultimately a virgin birth. And the one born will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, the birth would be evidence of God's presence with his people. In the Old Testament, that presence 
could be felt in a number of ways, but in the New Testament, in the Incarnation, Jesus was fully God with us. The sign was that the Davidic family would continue and it would have a future, but sharing in that future required faith. Then, in chapter 8, the prophet lets people know that Emmanuel, this king, will be either a stumbling stone or a foundation stone, depending on whether they believe in him and make him their sanctuary or not. If they do not, if they continue to go after spiritists and necromancers and the like, they will find no answer. Why should they seek the answer from among the dead? They should seek the living God. And in in parentheses, parenthetically, he says, the angels in the garden tomb use this line, why do you seek the living among the dead? Then in chapter 9, Isaiah identifies this wonder king, Emmanuel, and gives him throne names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will reign with peace and righteousness. Amazingly, Isaiah says that a child will be born, a son will be given. The fulfillment in Christ shows how precise this distinction would be. And then, according to Isaiah 11, Isaiah says that this king will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about universal changes in all creation. So the announcement of the supernatural birth of Messiah is in a context filled with descriptions of this coming king. You see that? He is, to say the least, much more than a mortal king. He is a supernatural. He is supernatural in every sense of the word. And from that context, the New Testament writers knew that this Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, was the fulfillment of the prophecy given some 700 years earlier. They may not have always understood it, but they soon came to realize that Jesus was indeed God with them in the very flesh. When Matthew explains that the verse in Isaiah 7 finds its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus, he is also saying that everything in Isaiah chapters 7 through 11 that describes the one born of the virgin applies also to this Christ. Pretty cool. Last thing on this virgin then. Virgin signifies that this birth was not natural, but supernatural. The birth was not commonplace, but extraordinary, extraordinary. It was not merely a human, mortal birth, but the divine birth. Not only do we read this here, church, but get this, other writers of the gospel say the same thing. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, I'm going to keep moving. If you want to, you can write these down. I'm going to keep moving. Uh, Luke says he will be he will, be called, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. We have a human line and a divine reign. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then also verses four, verse 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Word, Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only, the unique one, 
who came from the Father, begotten, full of grace and truth. And then in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His, I love this, only begotten Son. Only begotten. It's mono-begotten. Unique begotten. Meaning not created, not made, and unique in this manner. The verb describes one who comes directly from and shares directly in the nature of the Father. The virgin birth, supernatural, divine. Our God has come. <laughs> then, here then is the significance of, the, of, this, of this fulfillment. Listen again and sit up in your seats, if you will. This is how the birth of Jesus, the anointed one, King, came about. She will be found with child through the Holy Spirit. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The virgin will be, the virgin will be with child. Here then you have to face what the claim is. This birth, this Jesus is not merely a mortal man, but a divine king, the king. And Matthew will, will continue to show that throughout his gospel. And you have to sit up and listen. You have to decide to accept what he says as true or that it's nonsense. If it is true, actually true, then you really have no choice unless you want to be stubborn and refuse to believe. If not true, then you'll have to discount him and all that he says about himself as absurd for the rest of the book. But we, church, we believe this to be true. Amen. The good news. Light has come into the world. The only God has become flesh and made his dwelling with us. Miraculous, right? Out of this world. Finally, the last point what this means. He has come to save us. I'm giving it away right here. And he has come to be with us. What this birth means. So again, back into our, our, um, our passage. But as he considered, Joseph considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is my favorite part, by the way, so get ready. Jesus. The name. We say Jesus. It's from the Greek. I'm, uh, maybe you turn to... It's I-E-S-O-U-S. I'm guessing it's Jesus. Okay? Jesus. It kind of sounds like Yesu, which where we go to Jesus, right? But in Hebrew, the name is Yeshua. Y-E, yeah, sorry, Yehoshua. Y-E-H-O-S-H-U-A-H. The word, it's wordplay on the verb Yasha, Y-A-S-H-A, which means to save. Okay, Yeshua, Joshua, Isaiah, okay, Hosea. So Yeshua, Yeshua is also Joshua, our Joshua in English. And thus Joshua, Jesus, 
depending on if it's Hebrew or Greek, Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh, Yeshua, saves. Yahweh is salvation. His name literally means Yahweh saves. He is God and He saves. That's His purpose. Now, it says, you shall call His name Yeshua. For He, Yeshua, God saves, will save His people. Yahweh saves His people. Also, its fuller meaning is that this Jesus, the Anointed One, is God Himself saving His people. It really brings it into meaning. I always think about this when when I think this. John records Philip saying to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He will save his people from what? Their sin. But this is not what the nation of Israel and its religious establishment was looking for, right? They were looking for a political leader who would save them from oppression and deliver them. To restore the physical kingdom, this was their concept of salvation. This is not actually just unique to them. Some might view this way today as a great teacher, but his saving didn't amount to much. And I'll, I'll just step back and say a story here. I knew a guy in, in graduate school who, he's, he's pretty belligerent actually against the Christian faith, but one of the things he, he, he posted once on the social media was basically if, you know, if, if he was really God, he would have actually done something that made sense and you know, given the world uh, you know, um, cures and cured you know, fixed poverty and, and abuse of power and all these things that we see today. But I just kind of smiled and I said, you don't know him, right? That's not our greatest problem. It's much deeper than that. Our greatest problem is our very nature. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we used to walk. We were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. And Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. Separation from God, from life. Church, this is our greatest problem and threat. What does it matter if we're saved from poverty, sickness, and power abuse if we are not saved from this? From the penalty of living for ourselves and not giving glory to and loving with all our heart mind, soul, and strength, the most precious, the all-powerful, the just, the perfect, the innocent, the beautiful, the spotless, the holy, the infinite God. If you violate Him, the holy and infinite, and choose something else, what do you deserve? Separation from Him. You don't want Him anyway. And if he is the life, you've chosen separation from life. Death. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns you death. The only wages you earn, the only result of sin, life for yourselves and to yourselves, is death. In church, 
This is true for everyone. Everyone's destiny. We may not be as bad as we can be, but we are bad as, we as bad off as we can be. Church, if this is true, then nothing else matters. Nothing else. But that is why he came. Not to f- fix poverty and abuse of power. He will do that someday. But he came to save us from our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Ultimate salvation. Ultimate salvation. From separation forever to unification forever. From death to life. For by grace you have been saved. We are saved, church. Saved. Yeshua. Jesus. Yahweh saves. Finally, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Church, because we are saved, we can be with God. As we discussed earlier, God was giving a sign to Israel in Isaiah that even through their fear of extinction, he would be with them and not let extinction come but he would save them, and this sign would be to confirm that he was with them, God with us. Here then, in Jesus, is the ultimate fulfillment. God with us, in the flesh, the incarnation. With us in the spiritual sense, yes. And yes, indeed. But even more than that, he came to, he came to us as us, like us, God with us in the flesh, truly and to the fullest sense with us, physically and spiritually with us. It's a mystery. Profound. The two mysteries then we should marvel over today, church, Virgin, right? That somehow God would be born, but not by the will of man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how this happens, we don't know. It is a mystery. But I think even more mysterious is Emmanuel. God with us. That the infinite, the infinite, over and outside of time, Place, infinite knowledge, the infinite justice, grace, mercy, love, and power took on flesh and became a man. That the author of life could enter into it and have life taken from him. And then he actually would do this. God with us. Something to contemplate, church profound. Let's end then with Scripture to help explain the full meaning of all this. I'm going to let you turn to these three passages. And what better way to close? Let's go to Philippians 2, verses 5. We'll start at the second half of 5 and go through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, 5b.
Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23. He is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in your faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel and finally galatians 4 4 through 7 it was our opening verse i want to close with it today Yeshua, God saves Emmanuel with us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This means, church, the firstborn son. So we're going to keep using the word son here because it's important. Firstborn son as the inheritor. You are all men and women alike, sons, the firstborn inheritors with Christ. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, each of you, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, God with us. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, here then is the gospel and the full meaning of the birth of Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, that you came to save your people. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, from separation from you, the pure, holy, all-powerful, beautiful, infinite, and wise Father. To be saved from our sins, to be saved from death, to be saved to life, to be with you. Father, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we know that if we confess this with our mouths, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that you, God, raised him from the dead, we will be saved. This is good news. This is astounding and it is profound. This is earth-shaking, life-shaking, life-altering. Father, I pray that those who may not know you in this room or listening online, that you may open their hearts and minds to the gospel, this profound message, both through this passage and in the preaching of Matthew's gospels from here on out, your words that they might come to see Jesus as he is, God in the flesh to save, to redeem, to save humanity back to yourself, to be with you. And you with you both spiritually and ultimately physically and spiritually forever, forever in true life, in the glory of God, he who dwells in an unapproachable light. And Father, I pray that we, your church, would know this, that you might give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. I pray also that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, nor that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe the power which you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in heavenly realms. May this all be so, Father. And may you be glorified in our lives and in the church. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.